Well, this morning we were in the Gospel of Luke, looking at one of Peter's first encounters with Jesus. We come in now some way down the line in Luke's second volume in Acts. Peter too has come some way from those early days, and this is now after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Now Peter is standing up in Jerusalem, preaching to big crowds. So if you're not there already, please make your way to Acts chapter 2, I think page 1093, if you're using one of the church. Since we are just coming straight into the middle of it, it's a good idea to first have in mind what we're looking at. This is Peter's famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. The situation comes about when the church has gathered together in Jerusalem on the day of that feast of Pentecost. And as they're gathered there, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. And this landmark event is accompanied by the Spirit enabling them to speak all kinds of different languages, which, as you might imagine, draws a sizable crowd. I think if you were to go halfway around the world and hear people speaking Dundonian, it would catch your attention, to say the least. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And so Peter begins to explain to them what's happening here. He begins by first clearing up their misunderstanding. The crowd is asking, what's happening? Not seen this before. Uh, Are they all drunk? No, they're not, Peter says. It's only nine in the morning. Actually, what you're seeing here is the result of God giving them his Holy Spirit, just as he said he would in the prophet Joel. And we have there those verses quoted from Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. And from there we hear all that was prophesied and promised those many years ago. That event, says Peter, that's what's happening right now in front of your eyes. The result of that promise... That's what you're seeing being fulfilled in front of you. But then, after pointing this out to the crowd, the bulk of Peter's sermon takes a very different focus. And that's what we'll be concentrating on tonight. Subject of Peter's sermon is Jesus. From start to finish, it is all about Jesus. The explanation of this event that he gives them is centered firmly upon Jesus. Is that surprising? Maybe. Uh, The crowd's questions are about the Holy Spirit. We might expect Peter to give them an outline description along those lines. This is what the Spirit is, this is what he is doing, Uh, this is how it all works. But rather... Peter just starts telling them about Jesus. You see, they need to understand that this isn't just some general spiritual experience that they're seeing. They need to understand that it is Jesus who's who's responsible for the sending of this Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who points to the person and work of Jesus. 
And so they can only understand what the Holy Spirit is doing if they first realize who Jesus really is. And so it is their misunderstanding of Jesus that is at the heart of their problem. Who is he? Who is this Jesus? Today there are plenty of different Jesuses on offer to suit your taste. Very much a buyer's market. All sorts of different portrayals of Jesus. Sometimes based upon a kernel of truth. uh, Sometimes purely figments of the imagination. I like to think of Jesus as dot, dot, dot. You ever heard of something like that? Uh, how will people you know finish that sentence? I like to think of Jesus as a peace worker. I like to think of Jesus as a nice guy, someone who affirms me, someone who agrees with me. Here's a really bizarre one I came across. I like to think of Jesus as an ice dancer, dressed all in white, and doing an interpretive dance of my life. I have no idea what that means. Um, That's racing driver Cal Norton in the film Talladega Nights. But he does go on to say in an interview, I kind of have a soft spot for the baby Jesus. The other types of Jesus are great too, but I just like the baby Jesus best. Because he's cute. What would this crowd of Jews in Jerusalem say about Jesus? We know previously, some had thought he was Elijah. Some said John the Baptist. But this is now after the crucifixion. I'm sure some there would say that Jesus is the blasphemer, that he was crucified and charged to be. And so today... What kind of answer would our culture give you? Who is Jesus? Uh, Generally positive, I think. Um, Jesus still holds a fairly good reputation with most. He's at least up there with the likes of Princess Diana, uh, Nelson Mandela, John Lennon, these kind of people. Lots and lots and lots of different ideas about Jesus going around, both then and now. Something they tend to have in common is that they fit him into our plans and allow us to keep him at arm's length. But these many different views of Jesus, what do we do with them? What is the truth? Will the real Jesus please stand up? We need to know. And so Peter introduces them to him. And that's what he's doing in this sermon. Their questions are about the Holy Spirit, but their misunderstanding is about Jesus. They need to meet the real Jesus, and so that is Peter's starting point. So if you do have your Bible open, we will now take a closer look at exactly what he says to them about Jesus. Let me first direct your eyes towards verse 36, which is the conclusion that Peter's working towards. 
Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's where Peter's heading. That's the direction he's going in. And there are a number of things that Peter mentions along the way to draw them to this conclusion. And we'll trace them through as we, as we read our way through again. So first at the beginning, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God, was accredited to you by God, was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So, Jesus' life, the miracles, the wonders, the signs, these are things which show him to be someone accredited to them by God. A man, yes, but one who performed these supernatural acts. You can't just explain them away. And he's reminding the crowd. Some of them were actually there and saw Jesus do these things. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So not only his life, but his death. Jesus was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This crucifixion he speaks of was no tragic accident. This was, in fact, God's set purpose. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for for death to keep its hold on him. Even though men had killed him, God, as it were, reversed the human verdict upon Jesus. The grave couldn't hold him. Raised, regenerated, resurrected to life. And then down in verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. From Jesus' resurrection, onto his ascension and exaltation in heaven. He has received the Holy Spirit from the Father, and has now poured him out upon his church. Do you see what God has done with this Jesus? Peter's saying. And the contrast throughout is always with man's verdict. You may have crucified him, Peter says, but look at what God has done. Look who God has shown Jesus to really be. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Not that Jesus became Lord and Christ, but that he is now exalted, seen in reality for what he's been all along. 
That's the real Jesus. That's God's verdict on Jesus. And it's God's verdict that counts. In fact, however I may like to end the sentence, I like to think of Jesus as, it's actually pretty irrelevant. The question is really the reality of the historical Jesus. That's what we're interested in. Four essential elements then to Peter's presentation of Jesus that he gives them here. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation to heaven. It's not supposed to be an exhaustive lift. It takes a whole Bible to preach the whole gospel of Jesus. But these are essential elements that this crowd and we must take on board, must grasp and acknowledge if we too are to encounter the real Jesus. I think it was Francis of Assisi who famously said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Not sure about that. Uh, You see, the gospel is essentially a spoken message. Words are necessary. Absolutely, our lives must support and promote this gospel message. That is vital. But there's no getting away from the fact that at some point everybody needs to hear these essential elements, the ones that Peter outlines here. Having a a gospel outline, uh, like... And if you have two ways to live here, little leaflets, quite useful sometimes. Um, it can be handy to have something like that in mind so that you at least know where you're heading. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that you're to go through a list or try and fit every point into each conversation. That would be, that would be weird. Um, but we must be wary of any gospel outline that stops short at Jesus' life and death. And doesn't go on like Peter does to Jesus' resurrection and ascension, where he then gives his spirit to his church. So then, the crowd's questions are about the Holy Spirit. But first, Peter introduces them to the real Jesus. Notice next the evidence that he gives them. There's a wide range of opinions about Jesus, we know that. Um, Peter's presenting one to them that is very much at odds with what they had previously reckoned on. Um, And it's always a reasonable question to ask, how do you know? Who's to say you're right, Peter? How do you know that this is the truth about Jesus. Responding that, well, you just have to have faith is never really a satisfactory answer. It's always reasonable and appropriate to ask beyond the question, how do you know? And so, woven into Peter's sermon here, he gives some solid reasons for his account. This isn't just Peter's opinions 
that we're chewing over here. The first set of witnesses that he draws on are the Old Testament prophets. There are those verses from Joel that we've seen, as well as here the testimony of Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. So that if you look down there to verse 25... David said about him, that is about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And then if you look down to verse 29, again, brothers, I can tell you confidently he says, that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And so Peter's argument runs like this. He says, King David couldn't possibly have been referring to himself in this psalm since everyone knows that he is dead and buried. Rather, Peter's saying, he was talking about his descendant who was to come. He was talking about Jesus. And so that if we're asking questions about Jesus' resurrection, then he's saying that you don't actually need to look any further than King David's testimony in these Psalms. Verse 31. Seeing what was ahead, he, David spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So here in these Psalms and in many, many other places, the Old Testament witnesses back up this description of Jesus that is being presented to them. We have the Old Testament witnesses. Not only them, but also, he says, the apostles' eyewitness accounts that do the same. So that's verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. You and I weren't around at the time, we weren't eyewitnesses, but they were. The apostles, as well as over 500 other eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. You might be familiar with Peter's words from his second epistle, where he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is reliable, first-hand witness accounts. These aren't fanciful stories. They're attestable events that happened in time and history. We're eyewitnesses, he says. The Old Testament witnesses, the apostles as eyewitnesses, and add to that the miracle signs and wonders we read of by which Jesus was accredited to them by God. 
I installed a new version of Office onto my computer recently, and as I did so, Microsoft required me to put in a code to authenticate my disk and prove that it's genuine. Something which accredits it and shows that it's not a counterfeit. If you were here this morning, you'd have seen the, my dodgy Rolex watch that I was showing to the children. Um, but no, God was doing the same, accrediting to them by these miracles and signs, saying, This is my son. This really is my promised Savior. Jesus is the Christ. This is him. It's not just Peter's view. This is God's verdict. Now, I know calling it evidence might sound like we're trying to prove something in court. It's not so much that, but it's presenting this whole host of witnesses to them that back up what Peter's saying. Things that demonstrate to them that this is the real Jesus that Peter's introducing them to. It is reasonable to believe this. Now, we don't have time now to go over all the many reasons why we can trust the Bible. But it is worth remembering that Peter's audience here are generally all Jewish, uh, people for whom the authority of Scripture is a given. And so you see later, actually, in Acts, where the audience are not Jewish, uh, and so the same assumptions about the knowledge of Scripture can't be made. There, the the starting point for the conversation uh, is somewhat different. Now, I suppose, likewise, again, for us in 21st century Dundee, there are different assumptions that people bring to the table, different ideas that people bring to the gospel conversation, and so the starting point has to be different, different things that need to be explained. So then, what do we have? Peter's presenting the real Jesus to the crowd. He backs it up as he goes with real, tangible reasons. And then we arrive at that conclusion in verse 36, where he's been bringing them all towards all along. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Which is a good question. Penny drops for them. They realize that their view of Jesus has been at odds with the reality of the situation. And as they understand that, they are cut to the heart. What are they to do? Is there any hope? Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Command is to repent. 
and be baptized, repenting of their sin, I suppose particularly repenting of their wrong view of Jesus. There is there the internal repentance and with that the external sign of baptism showing publicly that their allegiance is to Jesus. This is a radical repentance. Turning right around. Turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. And if they will do that, then the gospel promises the forgiveness of their sins. The promise is also that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us full circle back to where we were at the beginning, uh, back to when the crowd saw the Spirit being given to the church and were so confused trying to work out what was going on. For the crowd to begin to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, they first needed to be introduced to the person and work of Jesus. And now, with this promise of the Holy Spirit, they understand it is the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. Spiritual feelings in themselves are neither here nor there. Um, But the lesson here is that forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit are only given to those in relationship with Jesus. I don't know what you make of the Holy Spirit if you were asked, who is he, what does he do? The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of the Bible. But he does do so much more than that as well. And you just see the difference in Peter, in fact, as an example of that. Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times. We were reading about that this morning. And even then, after meeting the resurrected Jesus and being recommissioned, what did he do? Well, he still just went back to being a fisherman. It's much easier. Um, But now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is enabled, he is equipped to stand before all these people and introduce them to Jesus. Where does the ability to come to do that? Where does that come from? I had a look around this church this morning, actually, uh, just looking at some of the different events and programs and meetings that are run here. Um, And it's great. It's wonderful that you are involved in all those things. Um, But without the Holy Spirit, what do you think you could ever achieve? The Holy Spirit is given to all of God's people. That is the promise. It's not just a feeling of being zapped by something, a strange spiritual feeling. Uh, Nor is the Holy Spirit just a resource to be tapped. Um, But he is the one who equips and enables us 
to point people to Jesus. So in fact, if you just turn back the page in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, just over the page there at verse 8, um, where before ascending to heaven, Jesus says, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit leads us to witness. The Holy Spirit leads us to pointing people to Jesus. And so you see, it's not enough to just be theologically correct. It's not enough to just be theologically correct. The call is to be missional. The call is to be witnesses to the end of the earth. With the people that you rub shoulders with day by day, people of Dundee, Timbuktu, wherever that may be, that's the call. Your motive for that will come from the gospel, from the grace that you have yourself been shown. Your motive will come from the gospel and the power to be that witness comes from the Holy Spirit. Comes from God's Holy Spirit that he gives to every one of his people and who dwells in each one of his people. Here we're told that about 3,000 people accepted the message about Jesus. Is that surprising? Would it be more within our comfort zones if it were half a dozen instead of 3,000? Well, the Jesus of our imaginations is comfortable. Uh, the Jesus of our imaginations affirms us in everything we do and requires nothing of us. The real Jesus invades our comfort zones, confronts us with the gospel truth, and sends us back out to bear witness to it. But as he does that, as he sends us back out, he doesn't leave us as orphans to go it alone. But he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one who convicts us and the one who enables us to do what we could otherwise never do. Because what people need is not spiritual experience per se, what people need is to meet the real Jesus. Amen. Well, shall we pray together? Our Lord and God, we do pray that by your Holy Spirit you would lead us to repentance. You would lead us to see the real Jesus and commit ourselves to him. We would always remember the reality of his life and death and resurrection and ascension. 
and that we would know that he gives his spirit to dwell in his people. Regardless of what kind of feelings we might have just now, regardless of how our emotions may go up and down, that we would hold on to that promise and know the truth that your spirit dwells in us, that he enables us and strengthens us. Lord, how we pray that by your spirit you would bring us to point others to this wonderful life-giving message of your gospel, that we would be, be enabled to do what we could never do, that we would take our part in the work you call us to do. And what a privilege it is to do that. Thank you that we can sleep at night knowing that it is not all depend upon our own efforts, but that we would trust that it is your spirit alone who can open blind eyes and bring life out of death. And at the same time, we would hear that call to be part of your worldwide mission, bringing your church in bringing men and women, boys and girls, to bow the knee before you. Hear our prayer then, because we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.